All right, good morning again. Open your Bibles or navigate on your tablet or uh, smartphone to Jeremiah chapter 24. Our text this morning, Jeremiah 24, verses 1 through 10. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The topic we're going to find there, Jeremiah is shown two baskets of figs, one ripe, one rotten. They illustrate the people of Judah, the title of our message, the basket case scenario. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're going to talk about uh, humility today, and so we want to approach your word humbly in prayer. Ask, Lord, that you would attend the teaching of your word, and by that we mean that your Holy Spirit would take primarily your words as they're read, and then whatever comments, Lord, that makes sense, and bring them to our hearts so that we would know more about you than when we first came in here. Lord, you want to share insight about you, about yourself, about your love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, about your acceptance of us, about your salvation purchased on the cross by Jesus Christ about the resurrection from the dead and the power of the resurrection life, all of those things. There's so much that you desire to do in such a short time, but because you're God, you can do it, and we trust you to. Fill our hearts with the wonder of your love, overflowing with grace and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. MacGyver could fix anything with common, everyday materials. In the series pilot, after MacGyver uses a paperclip to short-circuit a highly advanced timing device on a nuclear warhead and defuse the bomb at the last second. Why do bombs have to get defused at the last second? You know, it's not dramatic anymore. Unless you're watching a show where somebody might actually get blown up. But, you know, because it's always one second to go, just defuse the bomb and move on. But anyway, he does it at the last second. Then he comes back to save the day with a chocolate bar. He uses it to plug up a sulfuric acid leak, explaining that when mixed with acid, sugar in chocolate forms a thick, gummy residue, which, by the way, is true. The Mythbusters uh, proved this in one of their episodes. <laughs> People refer to MacGyver all the time when they have to improvise. Just a few weeks ago, surgeons at University of Kansas Hospital faced a dilemma. They had a healthy liver from an organ donor, but it was too large to fit in their small transplant patient. I, I, it was a, a, a small woman who was their patient. I guess they got the liver from a wrestler, uh, but it wouldn't fit. I would have just folded it, but they decided to cut the liver in half and use it to save two patients. How many of you knew you could cut your liver in half and use it? Well, you're a nurse. Anyway, <laughs> at the press conference after the procedures, one of the surgeons said, transplant surgery is sometimes like MacGyver surgery. Now, that's not something you want to hear before your surgery. <laughs> now, this is like MacGyver. You got the right, you got some scalpels and some clamps? Ah, uh, we'll make do. I've got my keys. I can never find a razor, and I, just, I use my keys to open packages all the time and stuff. Can your surgeon say, ah, we don't have what we need, but we can MacGyver it. 
Not what you want to hear. But you know what else is like MacGyver surgery? And that is God working on your spiritual heart. He uses common everyday materials at his disposal. Through them, he shows you he loves you and has a glorious future in mind for you. In many cases, these common everyday materials that are available to God, they're in categories we do not appreciate. He uses things like suffering and affliction and adversity and persecution. Why does he use those things? Well, look around. We live in a fallen world, and those are the materials that are most readily available to improvise with. Look within. Even as believers, we are sinful human beings. Suffering, affliction, adversity, persecution, and the like are the materials readily available to God to work on sinful hearts to draw them closer to himself. A few words in our text that grip me, uh, we'll get to them in verse seven. He says, I will give them a heart to know me. Is not that what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, a heart to know God? Is not that what they forfeited and what God has been at work to restore, a heart to know him? I want to have a heart to know God, and I know you do as well. It's really the devotional desire of every Christian. Our text is going to describe two groups of people in 6th century Judah, and you guessed it, one group has a heart to know God, while the other says no to God. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, humbling yourself accompanies a heart to know God, and number two, hardening yourself accompanies a heart that says no to God. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 and humbling ourselves. Our chapter describes the Jews after the second Babylonian invasion and deportation somewhere around 597 B.C. As I've told you in previous studies, and many of you know, uh, the Babylonians came against Israel three different times. Uh, This is the second Jeremiah is a little bit difficult, not not a problem really, but a little bit difficult because sometimes it's out of chronological order. Chapter 24 actually happens after chapter 25. And so you're thinking, why did they do it that way? This is how God wants us to read it thematically. Uh, So just keep that in mind. We're not always in chronological order. And so here we're looking at a situation after the second Invasion. The nobles, the craftsmen, the finest young men have been taken to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends are there, as is the prophet Ezekiel. The stage was set for one final invasion in which Jerusalem and its temple would be destroyed. Most of the Jews who remained in Judah would be killed or scattered and hunted down in other nations. God likened these two groups, the one in Babylon and the one in Judah, to two baskets of figs. And so we look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. Now, baskets of just ripened figs would be a common sight outside the temple because they could be offered as first fruits to the Lord. 
If you were bringing an offering to the Lord, an agricultural offering, you would bring the first fruits of your harvest. It was offering them back to the Lord, thanking him for giving you a harvest in the first place and trusting him to bring in the rest of the harvest. Obviously, it would be unusual to see a basket of bad, very bad figs that could not be eaten and certainly would not be offered. Why they were there uh, is a mystery to us. Uh, It's interesting to me that Jeremiah happened to be in the temple or outside the temple just on the day when these two baskets were there next to each other so that the Lord could use them as an illustration. And it reminds us just to be mindful of our world and the fact that God many times still wants to speak to us through things in our common everyday experience if we'll listen for him. Now, I also like it that the illustration was quite simple. Jeremiah is this big-time prophet. He's one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And God says to him on this particular day, what do you see? And all it is is two baskets of figs. Very simple. We try so hard to complicate God and his word. Maybe we do it to seem smart or at least to seem not dumb. You know, nobody wants to seem dumb. And I think we like to think that we're smart. And so we have a tendency to complicate things. We use bigger words than are necessary. Uh, We draw things out. We use bigger words, more words than are necessary. I've heard over the years many times people describe a Bible study and say, well, man, that guy is really smart. Uh, I didn't understand some of what he was saying. He's so smart. You're going to laugh at this, but I, I I know this is the case already, that you would never leave here and say, you know, Gene is really smart. I don't want to be smart. I'm not smart. Uh, and I, I'm not self-deprecating. I'm just, you know, I barely got through school. Uh, you know, part of it was drugs, part of it was laziness, you know. Somehow I ended up at college and I worked hard and graduated, but I, I don't pretend to be smart. I don't want to seem smart. I want to seem simple. And, and if somebody wants to go away and say, that, that was simple, I could do that, that's great. Because we want to keep the Bible simple. You should understand what's being said about the Bible. You know, some of you got saved when you were little children, five, six years old. Uh, That's your testimony. You can't remember a time you weren't saved. And so, you know, when you were six, no one was explaining to you the hypostatic union of the two natures of Jesus Christ. Your parents didn't sit down with you and discuss the possible views of election and free will and then say, now, how are you going to come to this? You know, are you going to be a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Calminian or something like that? I mean, that didn't happen, but you got saved, and you were able to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'm not saying there aren't deep and powerful things to struggle with in the Word of God, but even those have to be presented simply and in fewer words. And so stay simple when you're presenting the gospel. Complicating it doesn't, it might make you seem smarter, but it, it, it doesn't have the effect that uh, the Lord wants it to have. And I also like Jeremiah's part. He could repeat the vision very clearly and not really add to it or subtract from it. The Lord said, what do you see? And he said, well, I see two baskets of figs, one ripe, one rotten. Some are good, some are bad. 
And so that's our part is to just repeat what the Lord has said, just to let out what the Lord has said. Verse four, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people. I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now these are very positive, hopeful verses. Remember the context. A foreign power who worshiped pagan gods had twice invaded Judah and carried off treasure and Jews who were now permanently exiled in Babylon. In exile, they had their names changed and they were expected to eat unclean foods and they were subject to all manner of worldliness and wickedness. Yet of this, God said twice, it was for their good. This is the heart of what we're talking about this morning. It makes spiritual sense if we remember that God's purpose was to give them a heart to know him. They were far from him, going through the motions of worship, but living in the world. They were, in a very serious way, backslidden. God had been calling to them through the prophets for decades, but they would not return. Looking upon them as a group, seeing their collective idolatry, God determined to use Babylon to bring them to repentance. It was time to intervene in order that they might return to him with their whole heart. Maybe a few words from Job will help to put this into perspective. After his incredible suffering, Job was able to declare, this is from Job 42.5, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. His heart had been affected by his affliction for his good. He essentially says, I had information about God. Now I've been transformed by God. I was doing all right. There's nothing wrong with Job's life. He was sacrificed. He was offering. He was even offering for his own children. But at the end of it, he said, I know God better than I've ever known him before. My life has been transformed. Job is essentially saying, I thought I was doing okay, but now I'm doing great because I see the Lord. Should God have left Judah alone? Of course not. Did he have to be so harsh? He used what was at his disposal given their hard-heartedness to effect the necessary transformation. Ultimately, the captivity in Babylon was the only thing that was going to change their hearts. Habakkuk didn't like it either. He was one of the prophets during this time. And Habakkuk looked out at the people and he said, God, you have got to do something. You're God. Act. There's no justice. We're oppressing the poor. Everybody's an idolater. There's all kinds of sin. What are you waiting for? And God says, well, I, I'm going to do something. But I don't want to tell you what it is because you're not going to like it. And he goes, I'm your prophet. I might be one of the minor prophets, but I'm, I'm a good guy. And so just tell me, I'm on your side. God says, well, I'm gonna raise up the Babylonians, take you into captivity. That'll do the trick. Yeah, I don't like that. 
Yeah, that, can we come up with plan B? God says, no, there is no plan B. And, and as Habakkuk struggles with that through the tr- three chapters of his book, he goes from fear to faith until he makes that wonderful declaration at the end where he says, though the fig tree fail to blossom and there's no food in the barn and there's no animals and everything is falling apart, yet will I praise him, he says, because he understood that the ultimate purpose of God was to turn their hearts back to him. They were sinners living in a fallen world. God was going to have to MacGyver their hearts to know him by using what was at his disposal. You and I remain sinners. We're saved sinners, having been justified by faith. God uses what is at his disposal in this fallen world to effect transformation so that we might have hearts to know him. For our part, we ought to humble ourselves in our sufferings, in our adversities, and in our afflictions, and in our persecutions, so God might reveal attitudes and impulses and habits that we really do want him to transform. Get ourselves in a workplace environment where, where you work, or where you have worked in the past. And a lot of times people have trouble at work, problems at work. So we live here in the West, and, you know, I mean, we have real problems, don't, don't get me wrong. People suffer, they even suffer persecution, but for the most part, we're kind of the cream of the crop when it comes to humanity in terms of just suffering. I mean, not too many of us are wondering if we're going to eat today or where we're going to sleep tonight and those kinds. Of, I mean, we have homeless in our culture, don't get me wrong, but for the most part, we're doing, you know, we're the top 1%. And so God doesn't have certain things at his disposal in order to work in our lives, in order to bring us uh, into a heart relationship with him. And in fact, our prosperity works against us. You see in the children of Israel, when God prospered them, they just fell away from the Lord. They think, well, God's prospering me. I must be doing great. I don't need to pray. I don't need to worship. I don't need to do any of this stuff. I'm just going, you know, God must love me. And so God, you know, looks at our life and he might say, okay, Gene, the only thing I really have to work with, I, I, you want to be transformed. You want a deeper relationship with me. That's what you prayed for this morning in your devotions. What I really have to work with is the eight or 10 or 12 hours a day that you are at work. And so I'm going to give you the worst boss that you can imagine. I'm going to allow you to work at this place. I mean, God doesn't make him a bad guy. He just is. And he says, I'm going to let you work there. And it's going to be brutal. And, 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 you know, you're going to have a hard time. And then you're going to go in and talk to your pastor. And you're going to say, I'm just having such a hard time at work. What do you want me to do? And, and, and I'm going to say, hey, that's the environment God has you in so that you can shine brightly in that dark place. And let me tell you what's going to happen. The, the more you shine, the meaner your boss is going to get. Wait, time out, wait. I, I want help. I came in for help. You're telling me this is going to get worse. I go, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be brutal. Enjoy it. Because it's a brief season in your life and then something's going to happen. You're going to get another job. Your boss is going to, you know, move on. Something's going to happen and you're going to realize that you wasted that opportunity. That God said, here's a great opportunity for you to be a Christian. For your light to shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. No, let, let it shine. And, and do it. And so that's what, that's what we're talking about this morning. God says, I am going to MacGyver things that are around you. You live in this house. Here's your neighborhood. Here's your job. This is what I have at my disposal so that you might have a heart to know me. I'm only suggesting what the text is suggesting, that if you're going through something, God wants to use it so that you will know him more than ever before. It's what every Christian's heart longs for 
It's just that we would rather God do it by showering us with health and wealth and prosperity, but that never works. I might tell God all day that if he gives me a Ferrari, I'll put a bumper sticker on it that says, I love God and you should too, or whatever. <laughs> but he knows that all I would do is get pulled over for speeding all the time. Well, I wouldn't. I, I can't. God will never give me a Ferrari because I drive like an old man. And uh, so, you know, all I need is my little Scion clown car. But anyway, you know what I hear a lot from Christians? I actually do, and I think you've heard this too. There are people who a trial will come upon them, something severe, a severe trial by anybody's measure, and they will say, we never really had any serious trials to speak of until now. In fact, Gene, we used to go to church all the time and you would talk about trials and persecutions and sufferings and we would feel like, man, is there something wrong with us? Because we're not really going through anything like that. Well, just wait. Because sooner or later, you're going to and it's gonna hit like a ton of bricks, something severe. But then you know what else people always say as they're going through it? They say, I never understood the depth and the breadth of God's love and grace and mercy in my life until the trial came. Because it was, it's impossible. There are some things you just can't know unless you experience them. You can't know that God is with you in the valley of the shadow of death unless you venture there with him. You can know it, you can have the information, as I said earlier, but not the transformation that takes place. And God is about the business, make no mistake about it, of transforming you, of bringing your heart into alignment with his until that day we see him face to face and have perfect fellowship with him. Everything is about bringing you more into the image of Christ. God is good all the time, and what you are going through is for your good if you will humble yourself and return to the Lord in it. However, you can harden yourself. By now, you may have forgotten the basket of bad, very bad figs, but here they are in verse 8. And as the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they're so bad... Surely, thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'll deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers." Now, on the surface, this might sound indiscriminate on God's part. After all, did these people have a choice as to whether or not they would be left behind? Well, actually, they did. Jeremiah had been urging the nation's leaders for decades, surrender to Babylon. Don't resist. This is the hand of God. Just surrender. They refused. Instead of obeying God, they looked to Egypt for political and military aid. Some had even already fled to Egypt against God's expressed will that they not do that. Now, I can't see what would have happened historically if they had repented and obeyed God, but it's clear that if they had surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and his armies from the beginning, there wouldn't have been sieges and there wouldn't have been you know, exiles and things like that. And so they did have a choice, and their choice was to resist. The people remaining in and around Jerusalem wanted to be there 
against God's will. There's even some talk among commentators that they felt they were the real chosen special people of God because after all, they stayed in the land with Jerusalem, with the temple, while others like Daniel and Ezekiel were taken away. It seems like people taken away are worse, doesn't it? It seems like if you go into captivity, that's worse than being left behind, but just the opposite was true. Now, given the situation they found themselves in, they chose to say no to God from a hard heart. God was trying to bring them to a place where they would know him, says surrender to Babylon, which was essentially a surrender to God, and they said, no way will we ever surrender to Babylon. And so God had to continue to deal harshly with them. Now, there's a long-running theological debate as to whether God hardens your heart or whether you harden it. I came across this quote that puts into what I think is the proper biblical perspective. It goes like this, a man hardens his own heart by not yielding to the will of God, while God hardens a man's heart by not yielding to the whims of man. Think of a parent disciplining a rebellious child, not that that's ever happened in your uh, you know, situation, but let's say theoretically you had a rebellious child. If the child humbles himself, great, you're back in fellowship. And, and as a parent, don't you just like, no, honey, you did this, you crossed the line, we drew a line, and it's, you crossed it, and you have a rebellious heart. All I need you to do is to admit it, confess it, ask for forgiveness, we'll pray together, and we'll continue uh, on this journey to 31 Flavors. You know, otherwise, we're headed home for a pankin, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And they just won't do it. They just absolutely refuse. So what happens? You have a choice. As a human being, you can say, ah, forget the rules. Like there was a set of commercials not too long ago where, you know, they would say, well, I want the ice cream, so let's just overlook the rules, you know, and, and act like you didn't really rebel. Well, you can't do that. I'll tell you who else can't do that. God can't do that. God can't just say, well, you know, you've rebelled against me and now you're refusing and you're hardening your heart, so I guess I'll just change my rules. I'll, I'll become more lenient so that your sin isn't sin anymore. God can't. So he says, no, I'm just, this is, I'm, I can't move off of this point. This is the word of God. And as that person continues to rebel, it realize, they realize that they have a hard heart and their heart looks harder and harder and harder until God steps in and has to do something severe. And, and you would say, well, God has hardened their heart by not giving in to their whims. And so I, I'm not one of these persons who thinks that God arbitrarily looks at a person and says, well, you're not saved anyway, so I'm just gonna harden your heart. I'm gonna use you as my tool, give you a harder heart, uh, cause your heart to be hard. No, God wants everybody's heart to turn to him Jesus on the cross says, uh, you know, he wants to draw everyone to himself, and it's up to us uh, to respond to that. God wants to give you a heart to know him. As long as we remain this side of heaven in these bodies of sin and death, we're going to be subject to God, though, MacGyvering our hearts to know him, using the common materials he has at his disposal in our fallen world. Now, of course, if you're a Christian... You already know God in the sense of being saved. What we're talking about here is an ongoing experience with God, a deepening intimacy with him. We're talking about what Habakkuk went through. We're talking about what Job went through. 
Both of those men would say, I know God. I know his grace. I know his mercy. I know his power. But as they went through their trial, as they went through their situation, they could come to the end of that and say, now I really know God. I heard of him before. I thought I knew him. Really. I thought we had a really close relationship. But man, do I know something more about the mercy of God than ever before. This is really an important thing because you do live in a fallen world. Things, you know, as much as we like to put a positive spin on things, some of you, some of us, your life is just terrible, at times at least. Whether it's uh, emotional difficulties, whether it's spiritual problems, whether it's a physical ailment, whatever it might be. I mean, the world is a very difficult place, and we ought to just admit that. I, I know we like to say, if life hands you lemons, make lemonade, you know, but sometimes people don't have any sugar, and it's really hard to make lemonade without sugar. Uh, and it's pretty bitter. I mean, people have it hard. They have it rough. And there are times when you think, I don't even, you know, I've been asking the Lord why. Why is this happening? There is no why. There's just who. Like I said earlier, why am I walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Well, why is because it's a fallen world and people die and there are dead things all around you, but you're walking with it, through it with him. It's the who. I always want God to tell me something. I always want information. Do you realize that? We're the information age. And so I'm suffering. I'm wondering, God, why am I going through? What is the purpose of this? And God doesn't tell me. Well, he's already told me in his word in broad strokes. He says, obviously, the purpose is to make you more like my son, to bring you to a place of maturity. But God is silent. There's no specific answer. But you know what? Then I experienced the ministry of God's presence. And I've told you before, sometimes that's the best ministry there is among human beings. You've been with people who are suffering, radical suffering. Suffering from news that they have cancer. Somebody just died in their family. There's irreparable damage to their life. Nothing's ever going to be the same. Just be with them. Just hang with them. Don't say anything other than you love them and you're praying for them. Don't try to analyze it. There is no information that you can give to a person at that time. Because God has to transform their heart. They have to get to the other end of that where they say, I, knew, I saw him for the first time. I wouldn't have known him any other way. So that's what this is about. That's what we're about, having hearts to know him. Let's pray.